welcome to Work Interrupted, a podcast looking at work life after COVID and asking what next. I'm Christina Patterson and I'm talking to people from a wide range of working backgrounds to find out how their own work is changing in the light of current challenges, what they think will happen to the work landscape and how we can make work work better for each other and for us. Today I'm delighted to welcome Dame Sarah Connolly, one of the world's leading mezzo-sopranos. She's well known for roles ranging from Caesar in Handel's Giulio Cesare to Sesto in Mozart's La Clemenza di Tito and Dido in Purcell's Dido and Aeneas. She's sung in many of the world's great opera houses, won masses of awards for her work and was awarded a damehood in 2017. She talked to me about the balls of steel she developed in her childhood, what she's learnt from playing men and what it's like when a pandemic collides with cancer. Well, it's a huge honour to have you on the podcast. Welcome, Dame Sarah. Um, I, I don't think I've ever called someone a Dane before, and certainly not someone my age. Uh, what does it feel like to be a Dane? What does it feel like? Um, <clears throat> in everyday life, no different at all. Um, the only time that um, I've ever thought it's something that would be nice is in the actual profession when I'm trying to find my dressing room and I find it and it says Dame Sarah Connolly which is a I suppose a mark of achievement in that those who um, sort of nominate you for this award are your peers as opposed to people who don't know you and um, they you know have done it because they appreciate what you bring to your profession, to our profession, to my profession. And I'm very flattered. So I that's the only time um, that I can I feel and also when I'm giving masterclasses to younger younger students sometimes it gives me a little bit of a, a teaching edge. Mind you, the other day I gave a masterclass and this girl was was really pushing back. <laughs> I thought Hang on a minute, love. I've been in this business a little bit longer than you. Um, I very much wanted her to have her voice. Don't get me wrong. I was I was very keen for her to say what she wanted. But when then when she was resisting and saying, I'm not doing it like that, I just thought, well, you know, I'm only here for the afternoon. You can disregard me in an hour's time. But right now, give it a go, eh? <laughs> Amazing. A friend of mine who um, is a best-selling writer uh, is doing some work with uh, with some colleagues who are half her age, and they were telling her off about her work. And <laughs> there are times in life when you want to pull a bit of rank simply yeah. because uh, you know more, you've done more, you've studied more, and in your case, you've achieved a phenomenal amount. So, well, thank uh, you. and I don't ever, for one second, think that what I um proposing is the only route is the only way is the only set of thoughts that you should have that would be terrible teaching um it's just that I encourage students to give my ideas a go so obviously she found them very frightening and very worrying so in that in in that situation she couldn't do it um it wasn't that it sounded like she wouldn't but actually it was that she couldn't um so I just have to show uh you know tremendous support and say I said to her afterwards don't give up on this song I really think because you find it difficult it's a really good thing to try and understand consider it your your mission to get this song to understand this song well we're talking on a very very bleak winter's day and uh, yesterday we had the highest number of deaths in the pandemic so far we've reached more than 100,000 deaths from Covid, things look unbelievably bleak at the moment. It, it sort of feels like we're in will the sun forget to streak territory because it almost looks as though it has. Um, and, and that was a song uh, from Handel's Solomon that you discussed in a Christmas Day Radio 3 programme on, on Handel. Yeah. I listened to it last week and it made me cry. And I listened to it again this morning and it made me cry again. Now, you said in it that Handel wrote about the human dilemma in every form, joy, sadness, rage, pain. And most of all, he wrote about love, the gift Mm. of giving love. We've never needed that more. Has Handel offered you consolation at this time? Um, He always does. When I listen to a song like that, obviously not with me singing, because I'm I'm not enamoured of my own voice. But when I listen to Handel's music, uh, particularly his vocal music, I do feel the chills in a good way. Um, I feel I as, there's some wonderful 
singers of Handel that absolutely understand what he's trying to say. And it's not it's not just the words or the music, it's it's the sentiment behind it, rather like what you were saying with Will the Sun Forget to Streak? If you understand that it's about love and parting mm-hmm. and farewell. And if you can if the singer and the musicians can portray that in some way through emphasis through empathy with the music that even the most beautiful voice in the world won't do it for you if that if that singer doesn't understand what it costs what does it cost to sing about parting um from somebody you love um and if they can show that through emotion in the music then they've got me and a great singer as john mark ainsley who's an amazing handelian and just all-round wonderful singer but he he his life his life experience and his um understanding of emotion of of what's behind all of these arias and lead or whatever it is he's singing um seems to get the message across in a way that perhaps just a pretty voice wouldn't mm. are you serious when you say you're not enamoured of your own voice. I've never word, heard the word Handelian before, but you are one of the top <laughs> Handelians in the world, I presume. How could you not be enamoured of your own voice? Oh, no, it's a vanity thing. I can't bear it. I can't. I, I I listen to, when I'm recording something, I have to listen to myself sing because from, from a purely critical point of view, you know, was that note in tune? Uh, was I correct rhythmically? Did I get the message across? And anybody who's worked with me knows what I look like in the sound booth you know I'm screwing my face up I'm I'm you know going swearing every other word going oh please no no <laughs> um so and it's not just this that was uh, my friend Matthew Rose calls the English disease which is self-deprecation to the mm. point where it's got ridiculous it's it's not that I just I just feel that um for pleasure sake I don't particularly um would I that wouldn't be my first choice having said that there are some recordings of the Mahler songs um that das Lied, I, das Lied van der Erde yes, oh, uh, yes. yes. Well, so, and the uh, uh leader Ines Farenden Gazelle mm-hmm. with the Herberger from years ago that somehow on that day or days couple of days we captured uh, a, a wonderful energy and so I'm very proud of that uh, that recording. I often, I've been listening to I've been listening to it a, a lot. Oh, I'm discovering it on your website. It's absolutely stunning. Oh, thank you. That, that I just feel I just feel that I can listen to that because there's this, there's a, there's the right feeling behind it all. I, I was um, I was coached well in the German on the day from the producer who was very particular about, and I'm very glad he was. Um, and everything seemed to work. Philippe was happy. Um, the orchestra were amazing. And the Dijon Concert Hall had the most beautiful acoustic I've ever come across, ever. So I, f- I, felt, I felt I was in a good place. And we'd just done a tour of these songs. So they were in my bones, as it were. And you, you sing in German, French and Italian. Do you speak all those languages? Well... I do speak bad French. It's, I can under, I can I can get by in a rehearsal speaking, you know, chatting, put it that way with and I can understand a director who's speaking in French and I can speak probably quite good GCSE level French. Um my Italian is less good and I'm now having German spe- uh, grammar lessons. So it will be fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> you can have a conversation with me it's not so fantastic at the moment I, I sing very well in German I have a very good ear so I can pick mm. up the sounds but um, I decided that it was my weakest language and given that I sing so much German repertoire it really is shameful that I can't speak it as well as I can sing it and also I also feel slightly shamed when I go to Germany and conductors or directors start to speak in English because of me. And I think, no, no, that's so embarrassing. Um, because they're so polite and they know their English is so good. Uh, so I just think, no, this has to change. Now, I, I first came across you when I went to Giulio Cesare at Glyndebourne with my mum in 2005. I've only been to Glyndebourne twice, both times with my mum. I don't have any music education and all I know about classical music 
which I listen to all the time, is how it fails, how it makes me feel. Mm. You were Julius Caesar and I fell in love with Handel Opera and have loved it ever since. Are you able to sum up what it is you love most about Handel Opera? Well, Handel, number one, was a humanist. Um, he, his, the combination of his characteristics, his quick mind, his love of people, the, the need to travel and be immersed in many different cultures and sounds and um, expressions, human expressions. Um, he was a natural dramatist. Uh, he understood all the human emotions, but also cleverly how to translate that into musical terms. Um, he was very interested in the extrovert nature of, of his singers and of music. So I would say, in contrast, Bach is an introvert. Um, there are moments of great extrovert, you know, sort of praising God. There's this tremendous sense of drama and majesty in, in Bach's uh, choral works, um, the, the masses in particular, the St. Matthew. But Ultimately, he is inward-looking and devotional music, whereas Handel is theatrical. And, um, you know, okay, so there are many theatrical composers, but does ha they don't always find that sweet spot. They don't make you cry. They don't make you think, I can't live without this particular aria or this particular song because it is my way in to feeling something. Now, I wouldn't dream of saying every piece of Handel makes me feel glad to be alive there's quite a lot of it and I just think oh right moving on I'll prefer a bit of Bach today but if I'm looking for something to make me feel connected to humanity I listen or I sit down at the keyboard and play and sing a Handelaria I always feel better uh, when I when I've done that because he understands somehow how to knit all these expressions together Mm. For, for me it's Handel and Bach and I but I just wish I had a music education because I I can't say I, I can't articulate anything about either of them except that they seem to me to particularly well both in different ways but to but, you know you don't need a musical education to appreciate I mean that that I know what you're saying and that you wish that you could talk in, in a sort of m m way musos do about it because you you know the you like to know about things but I would say that's that's <clears throat> I'm sure Handel himself would be the last person to I mean he would agree with me you don't need to have musical mm. education to appreciate the music I think and I think I'm sure Bach would too although I'm sure anyone dissecting his fugues you know he's very tough with his students um to get them to understand what it was all about um but ultimately I think with Handel and it's it's um it's it's very much uh, how you experience it that is sufficient. It's it's enough. It's if you can if the singer, and I'm really speaking about his vocal music and choral music, if they can get across what Handel was trying to say, then that's enough. You don't need to analyze it. <laughs> and what my my father used to play Radio Three on what he called the wireless all the time when we were children, and we'd hear this sort of caterwauling around the garden and think, "Oh, what's that awful stuff?" And of course, now I I become my father as as we sort of all do in the end. What role did music play in your childhood? Oh, that's a really interesting question because I would totally concur. Dad used to put Radio Three on. Sorry, Radio Three. Um, uh, over cornflakes and there we were listening to crashing Beethoven symphonies and I just thought for goodness sake you know at least at least Petrock doesn't doesn't inflict those on us at 8 a.m in the morning usually um but but I I um I do find that the way in was through my father's my parents record collection um and they were always putting things on different things on, on the player um, and let me think the earliest musical spirits as I suppose we had a you know beaten up upright and mum said she couldn't keep me off it and I can't remember you see why or how that happened um, I was just constantly playing it probably chopsticks or something um, and quite early on she said you know 
I think we'll give her piano lessons. But I, at age of five, I wasn't mature enough to sit in a room and do as I was told because all I wanted to do was improvise. Nothing's changed, actually. <laughs> um, it's the same. I'm not very good at being told what to do. I have to have an agreement with myself that I will do it, um, having been shown it's the right thing to do. And it's the same with my daughter, actually. Um, so I would say I first started taking piano lessons at seven. And I was singing in school choirs, little, you know, and I even joined the church choir when I was about nine. I just waltzed, waltzed in and said, can I join? And they said, you're a bit young. <laughs> I said, I know, but I want to sing. They said, what's your favourite hymn? So I said, when morning gilds the skies. And they said, oh, go on, sing us a bit then. And uh, they said, oh, yes, we'd love to have you. <laughs> so I took myself off every Sunday. Um, I remember berating my parents saying, why don't you go to church? Um, you, you know it all, don't you? And uh, so that was great fun. And then I got carried on with wonderful piano teachers to about the age of 11 and was grade seven-ish when I was 11 on the piano. And uh, then went to boarding school. It all went downhill, really, because I didn't get on with the piano teacher. She was sort of old school. Um, oh, a very strange lady, let's put it that way. Um, <laughs> and it, it, she did teach me something. She taught me to sight read, but it, it wasn't a happy time until I went to the Royal College of Music. Oh, actually, I went to Sixth Form College and picked up where I had left off at the age of 10, actually enjoying playing the piano again, as one should always do. So, so I, my parents' record collection was extraordinary. Dad had Britain's War Requiem with him conducting, um, uh, with Britain conducting, mm. and lots of Strauss. He loved Richard Strauss, so lots of uh, Rita Streich and uh, singing the four last songs. Um, and mother had all the Heiting uh, recordings, Bernard Heiting. Mm. Um, I mean, so many. She, she was. He was her favorite. Uh, conductor and found him very charming as well um he was quite visual visible often on the proms you know often uh, mm. very visible conductor and um so and lots of mozart and keyboard music of glenn gould lots of um harpsichord she loved harpsichord music so i and janet baker and kathleen ferrier so i was listening to their um greatest hits albums rather than through composed operas mm. and that way I got to know apart from the shorter ones Dido and Aeneas but I got to know a big repertoire through the greatest hits as it were um, so anything from French Baroque through to anything that Janet sang I listened to I we had a big collection of her music of her mm. recordings. so those those were playing pretty much all the time at home funny because so much of that overlaps with, with my childhood unfortunately I learned the piano and uh, well I my best friend and I uh, had piano lessons and then but we instead of doing practice we brought flowers to the piano teacher we picked them in the garden and then oh. we did grade four and then when my friend gave up I gave up and that was that and I I really regret it but um, but never mind so while you were at the Royal College of Music I think your focus was on piano rather than singing is that right yeah. yes and, um I made a promise to myself to try. I mean, at first, I I wasn't really priming, primed or priming myself to be a singer, even though I was singing a lot at my sixth form college, Clarendon in Nottingham. Um, I think it's now called New College in Mansfield Road, but it had a fantastic music department, um, very eclectic, lots of different disciplines, um, and singing chorus and madrigal music, um, and playing in a band, playing in a bad cello in an orchestra, very bad cello, and just being part of the group. I, I always saw myself primarily as a keyboard player. And yes, I, I, I look back on that. My daughter is now applying for conservatoires and oh. universities. And I'm very, it's very much in mind now what I was doing and thinking at that time. And I don't know quite how I got into the Royal College of Music on that day. I forgot the music, for goodness sake. Um, I left it in a friend's flat. And I, I just thought, oh, 
God, here we go, you know, Connolly rubbish going on. And I turned up and the invigilator outside said, oh, we'll nip down to the library and and get some music. I thought it was indicative that I hadn't memorised it as well, which I should have done. But I wasn't memorising anything at that time. I was playing a lot of uh, piano quartets and piano quintets and everything was about sight reading and cramming as much performing experience in as possible. There's no time to learn anything. Um, so I got the the music from the library and went in. Of course, when I opened up the music, it was all diff- laid out differently. So <laughs> our pen was on the left page instead of the right page. And I, was, I looked, you know, most of it I knew from memory, but I'd look up to the familiar spots that I needed and couldn't find it. Nightmare. I was just sweating. And then my right foot got ankle shake on. I mean, that's never happened to me before. My right ankle went into a spasm on this on the sustain pedal and I thought well that's never happened before and uh, a very famous concert pianist who who I recognized was turning the pages Yonti Solomon and I just thought this is just a disaster from beginning to end and uh, I don't really remember how I played um, it's all felt I felt frazzled um, and then they gave an oral test which I I passed I can I could always do the oral tests and then I sort of left and thought, well, that's that. That's gone. And they accepted me. So I thought they must have been desperate for someone to take that. You know, so <laughs> they really making up the numbers. Um, and then I uh, had a wonderful piano teacher there. And we continued for three of the four years to get to the top standard at the Royal Internal Exam Standard, which was grade five. It's nothing to do with ABRSM. It's the mm. Royal College of Music own exams. And I... I I thought I'm going to make a promise to myself to be the best pianist I can be and then I'll leave it alone and it was the right decision um I did a lot of singing as well but uh that was my priority while I was an undergraduate yeah and did you go straight into the BBC singers after leaving the Royal College um I did a postgrad year where um I was earning bits and pieces with the Stephen Hill singers, the BBC singers ad hoc, mm. uh, part-time, and then various other groups, the 16, Monteverdi Choir. So I was in, I was getting to know these groups, and there was a vacancy that came up in the Alto, a full-time vacancy, and these are so rare. I was told, incredibly rare, that there's a vacancy. and So I thought, well, I'll try, and I got it. Um, and I'm very glad I did. They were a fantastic group of people. We still have Zoom meetings every two weeks to talk about the old times. Really? How amazing. Yes, I love it. And and the new times as well. But but those of us who were in the 1980s, the um, permanent members, we, we have a fortnightly chat. It's lovely to be in touch with them. And that's one of the upsides of COVID is that it's, it is encouraging people to be in touch with each other more. Yes. Well, I'm glad you found one. That's very good going. <laughs> uh, the last person I interviewed for the podcast, I asked him and he said, if there were any positives, then he said, I'm sorry, I just can't come up with any at all. No, no, fair enough. Um, so at what point did you become clear that opera was the path you wanted to pursue? Well, that took longer. Um, I, I absolutely loved individual arias of Handel, of... Um, Monteverdi in particular, his all of his music was incredible. Um, and I liked the drama and the excitement of Handel's music and loved the drama and excitement of Puccini, say, but I knew I would never sing Puccini because he didn't write for mezzos, mm. um, not lyric mezzos anyway. Um, and Mozart, absolutely adored his music, but it's quite high and I wouldn't quite have the high notes. And so I found... Um, well, I would say I decided to leave the BBC Singers when I was 29. And there was this singing competition in Holland, a very famous one called the Setochenbosch, which is the town. Um, and I thought, well, I'm not going to enter the category for oratorio because that's too easy. I'm not saying that I would win it, but it, you know, it's not a challenge. And neither is the song area a challenge in particular because I was doing a lot of song. Why don't why not try the area where I'm least confident, and that was opera. Um, 
so I did and I came second which is an extraordinary wow. I've always kicked out in the first round in every, every competition I've ever entered the Kathleen Ferrier competition the Richard Tauber whatever um, I did get to the finals of the Richard Tauber once but I'd entered it about three times um, and I got I came second I couldn't believe it I got to the final um, and through that competition I would say I got to understand really what what it took to present an operatic aria not just my own performance but I watched others and I thought that's fascinating you really do have to give an awful lot of yourself mm. um, it's it's a real act of giving uh, to sing parto parto from Clemenza di Tito or Dido's Lament it's not just about standing there and singing you, you, it's to put it across it tre- tremendous commitment physical and mental commitment and wow. I thought am I ready for this um, certainly the panel seemed to think I was so they chatted to me afterwards and said oh well done you know you should focus on this repertoire maybe not that and it was it was very encouraging They're lovely people um, and I just auditioned at around the same time for Werther for English touring opera and I got the got the main female part Charlotte and so I was finding my feet should we say I mean it's a, not a small role it's a huge role Charlotte it's, it's very difficult and very high um, and I found my wonderful singing teacher Gerald Martin Moore at the same time and 1995 so that really it was two years after I left the BBC Singers that really cemented um, gave me the foundations to move into opera because you can't sing opera unless you've got a good technique um, you can fumble around a bit but your voice might hit various problems um, uh, and this teacher I knew taught the most wonderful sopranos Rosemary Joshua, Rosa Bunyan, um, Rebecca Evans and he was their primary teacher I thought right well they sing wonderfully they seem to know what they're doing so I'm going to I'm going to stick with him and it was um, the best thing I've ever done. Amazing. I mean, what I can't believe that you pushed yourself to take to enter competitions in areas that you felt were not even your strength. What was it that, or what is it that, always has you pushing the next barrier? Um, I think it's a sense of being told as a child. I had some a really rubbish set of two schools I went to that I couldn't. You can't do this. You're not good enough. Um, you're not clever enough, you're, you know, and and much worse. I'm not going to start crying about that now, um, metaphorically speaking. But I was told throughout my life that I was, you know, a failure by not only my, possibly my, yeah, yes, my, my parents, but also, I find that difficult to say, but also my um, teachers, quite a lot of them, you know, just said, well, you're not going to make anything of yourself. Um, don't see anything in you except for perhaps my early piano teachers who are lovely people um, and the examiners who always gave me very high marks so there was some disparity going on <laughs> um, and but I knew when I was about 10 that they could all go to hell I remember looking in the mirror saying you're on your own now never mind them you're on your own uh, this is just you you're double figures now never mind anybody else it's just you and I thought that was, I get quite creeped out listening to or remembering that now. I've got goosebumps as you say that. Yeah, I mean, is, is that where the balls of steel come from? Yeah, it must be. It must be because I, I just can't understand what drives me other than the fact that I've been constantly told and undermined. Um, I mean, my mother did encourage my music making. Of course she did. It's, I'm very lucky that she did. She bought me a piano. Um, but there was a huge amount of the, the contract for that, if you like, was a hell of a lot of criticism. Mm. And it was overwhelming, saturated me. I, I've, my confidence got knocked so badly. Everything was wrong. Um, it was terrible. The sort of barrage of criticism. And I've, I, I think that probably has something to do with um, the fact that I have been so keen to to say no I am doing this and I defy the lot of you I probably also always have that in me that spirit of um, um, 
I'm doing it my way because my daughter's the same. Um, so I reckon it's that's something in our nature. Amazing. And, and yet traditionally uh, in our, um, well, historically and in our sexist and often misogynistic culture, that has been a male trait. And ironically enough, you have played a lot of so-called trouser oh. roles um, in which you've had to not only imagine and enter the male psyche, but also understand more about power. What would you say? Do you think there's a relationship between the balls you've just been talking about and what has happened in your career on that front? I don't think it's sort of the testosterone element. No, I don't think it's that. I think women are equally strong. I just look at Jermaine Greer and I think warrior woman, you know. Um, so it's it's not so much a male-female thing, but the the balance of power as far as society is concerned is what interests me when I play these male characters. Um, I, I meant, by the way, culturally. I mean, I didn't mean in literally in terms of testosterone versus non-testosterone. Right. I meant that culturally that mm-hmm. power is obviously much more associated with men than women. Yes, well, culturally... What has drawn me to those characters? I think it's it hasn't really. It's the music. Uh, mm. Handel's music is filled with the castrato roles, the repertoire. Mm. Um, if it's not Handel, then usually I'm singing female characters. Um, but it has been a very interesting experiment to, you know, parade around as a man uh, or a young man, an old man, not old as in old, but my age, fifty, mid fifties. It's it's been very interesting to play these characters to see what they bring out mm. um, in me, and I would say I'm well suited to to the this and what what I what I've observed as well. You know, very much of it is at what I've seen around me. And when I played Xerxes, um, Handel Xerxes in Nick Heitner's production, he was very much a sort of self satisfied despot. Um, but Handel was always laughing at him. There was an element of laughing with him and at him. Um, and so I could see the irony of that and enjoyed it. I was sort of playing a bit of a Stephen Fry character, some this sort of Oscar Wilde, slightly obsequious at times. You know, there was that sort of sense of um, I'm, I'm, everything's all right with the world. Um, that That I enjoyed playing that character. And I suppose... I felt it was a privilege to play somebody like that because it's not real, is it? It's it's it could never be real for a woman to to play a character that's so self satisfied. Maybe there'll be you'll be getting letters in saying, "Oh, but <laughs> excuse me, I think you're fine." Um, but I I just thought it was it it was a very interesting experiment to culturally explore the masculine side mm. uh, and and the influences in that I've read and seen and the port go to the natural national portrait gallery and you see the, all the kings and queens posing and you just see the way they sit in the chair and you see the look on their faces and I often think oh yes that there's elements of that in this character is um, and then you know also. The, the more humble pictures and you, you just sort of look at the other characters in the operas and you think yes that's that's got an element of so-and-so in it you know um, a mastress the person who gets constantly thrown aside by Xerxes um, it's, it's very interesting looking at her character mm. and how my character interacts with somebody who is who's um, a sort of masochistic because the astonishing thing about opera is that it's such a multi-layered art form. Not only do you have to go deep, deep, deep in the way that you described earlier in the singing, but then you've got to inhabit a character and interpret that physically. Mm-hmm. How do you learn that? Obviously, you work with different directors who have different approaches, but how did you learn to act? That's good good question you ask very good questions Christina because I didn't have the privilege of going to drama college I would say as a pianist I could fumble my way through most um, song piano accompaniments um, and I would get to know the song repertoire that way and in order to sing as a young singer I mean um, as a student in order to sing songs well you have to uh have in your imagination um, a microcosm, a, a world of, of 
reality is it's only last three minutes but you have to create this world um the story of of the young nun die junge nonna by schubert you know you have to think about where she is the music is describing where she is you know what's her mental state what she feeling what she thinking why is she thinking this um who is she speaking with um is she speaking to herself? Where is she? How cold is she? Is she this, what's the music telling me? So all of these things are, are my observations from listening and singing this music and what I feel, you know, when, and the best singers of those like uh, Fischer Dieskel, Hermann Pyle, um, uh, the people I listened to, you, I really got, and Janet Baker, I really got a sense of drama from these short songs and so I suppose I understood that that's what needed to be brought to the bigger picture to the operatic aria um, so singing one of the first pieces I ever sang was Dido's Lament from uh, Dido mm -hmm. um, Purcell's Dido mm -hmm. um, and Aeneas um, I got a sense of real um, as I mentioned earlier real cost you have to really feel that you are saying goodbye to Belinda and so just that simple act of saying goodbye to her in, during the lament, although you never use that word goodbye, it's what you're thinking, um, is is what is behind. So if I came from, all, all the acting came from that angle, is what do the words mean? Mm. How do the words inform my facial expression? I didn't even think about that. It's, if you're thinking, they, now I look and read acting books and they all say um, you've got to think think what the words mean are what they mean what they cost um so always have the verbs and always have the nouns don't always be thinking of adjectives you know um you know it's it's very much the sense of what you mean of what is being said um so i feel that that's the way i came to acting um i also my my first very early experience was working with nicholas heitner in the cunning little vixen um in paris and i was playing um, assorted roles, short little roles, and one of them was the innkeeper's wife. And I, um, he, he was a bit short with me because I was, I was rubbish. And uh, he, <laughs> I sort of came out of this uh, doorway, sort of waddling. He said, "What are you doing?" And I said, um, "Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be wearing a fat suit, so I'm waddling." And he said, "Well, let the fat suit take care of that when you get to wear it, because early rehearsals." And I think the, through the whole morning, he was slapping his hand on his forehead, you know, and I felt so ashamed because I was <laughs> proud to be there. And um, he said, he said, exasperatedly, for God's sake, stop acting and just be. And I just thought, phew, there's, a, there's an acting lesson. And then I, that I was also deeply humiliated and, and horrified, but he was completely right. And, and that is really all that needs to be said about acting, I think stop acting and just be and underneath that you can have all sorts of subtitles and um but but he's quite right and it was quite hard to be this person mm. at my age I was very young and she was an old gnarly old uh, innkeeper's wife I hadn't thought about what that meant you know the layers of who she was who she might be what her life experience what her day-to-day -day experience might be why is her why is she walking in any way at all? Is it because her feet hurt? You know, all these things that actors consider when they're taking on a role. Have you played any roles that you feel have changed you? Oh, definitely, yes. I think uh, Rape of Lucretia changed me by Britain. Um, I felt for the, uh, the, the deepest sense of despair of loss in that opera. I felt there was this sense of, uh, must have chimed with my childhood of needing um, love from my husband, Collatinus, in, in the opera, who was never around. And that I, it, it was just wasn't there. Um, so he wasn't there to support me. Nobody understood me. She was, Lucretia was, um, a chatelaine, if you like, in this Roman household with her um, maids, her lifetime companion, Bianca. And Bianca 
like a mother who doesn't really understand. She was there, but not listening, um, caring for her physicality, but not her mental well-being. And so I felt there were lots of parallels in that opera that chimed with me. And I found the music very, I found it very grueling and heartbreaking to sing. And there were many times where I had real tears and I had to be careful because if you sing with real tears, your larynx rises. Mm. And also you get lots of um, guitar, which is no good if it settles on the vocal cords. Um, so it was a learning experience. I had to really, um, it was a very visceral experience. Mm. You had your major work interruption in 2019 when you were diagnosed with breast cancer. Do you think your experience of cancer changed you? That's a good question. I wish I knew the answer to that. I would say that it has made um, made me more fearful. I was I used to go through life with a bit of a like my mother. You know, she was a uh, a, a national hockey player. Mm. And she said, you know, people used to bounce off her and she didn't feel it. And they used to come come at the end of the match, you know, with bruises. And she said, and they sort of said, oh, God, that must have really hurt. And she said, I don't have any bruises. I said, what are you talking about? Um, so I had that sort of, I used to go through a bit, you know, I had the odd cold now and again, the odd cough, the odd sore throat, but nothing much. And I think a state of mind was just work, work very, very hard, keep going, doing all the disciplines, the singing the teaching, the master classes, the operas, the concerts, the recitals. It was just, I'm not surprised I got cancer, to be honest. I was working far too hard, pushing mm. myself. Um, I mean, we none of us know why we've got cancer. It's not genetic. I've had the genetic test. It's, it's not, I can rule that one out. Um, <clears throat> I don't smoke, so it's not that. So I, I'm... I just, who knows why why these things happen, but I suspect it's because I was pushing myself too hard. Mm. Um, so, uh, yes, it's, cancer has made me feel uh, more afraid and I don't think that's a bad thing. It's made me step back a bit and feel, I mean, everybody has their own experiences of chemotherapy. Some get off quite lightly and that's great. I had a terrible time with FECT, the acronym for that. It, it was it was just shocking. I sort of knew I would, which is why I didn't want to have it. Mm. And I thought, oh, you're just being a coward. And my daughter said, please have it. I don't, you know, I don't want. We want to get rid of this. So, with a heavy heart, I did. And then it was yes, there we are. It was it was it was the most shocking thing I've ever had to experience, and I. Hope I never have to go through that again. Mm, I hope you never have to mm. as well. And then, of course, the pandemic hit. Mm. And I wonder, well, I went, I was going to say that, you know, I'd had a, a devastating bereavement just before it hit. So for me, the pandemic sort of felt like a picnic in comparison. Personally speaking, obviously, on a mass scale, it is a multi-day of tragedy that we cannot reach yeah. the bottom of. But I wondered what it was like for you or what it has been like for you um actually interestingly i was coming to the end of chemotherapy when it hit february time february march um and so i wasn't going anywhere or doing anything anyway for four or five months but and then of course i was supposed to have radiotherapy shortly afterwards so i was out of action anyway mm. um so all this isolation and lockdown suited me because I couldn't go out because I was susceptible to catching germs um, while I was on chemotherapy so I was already isolating um, and staying away from people um, but not perhaps to the lockdown levels and I certainly wasn't wearing a mask um, so the timing of it in a way has it's been interesting mm. in in that it hasn't affected me um, at all. I wouldn't have been earning any money anyway, not that I've received any from Rishi Sunak, not a penny. Mm. Um, um, so for a year, I was out of action, yes. And then this last autumn, after radiotherapy, I sort of crept back into a few jobs before it all closed down again. Mm. 
I worry for the younger singers. It's an absolute tragedy. And on top of that, we've got Brexit. Uh, you have been and continue to be, well, you have been a vocal anti-Brexit campaigner. Of course, it's happened now. So um, one could argue about whether one can campaign anymore. But uh, we've seen how disastrous it's going to be for musicians and artists in the EU and also discovered last week that the government was offered the opportunity for musicians and artists to have um, visa-free travel and turned it down. Yeah. How did you feel when you heard that? Um, dismayed is an understatement. Mm-hmm. Furious is, is probably nearer. Um, it, it, that they are prepared to sacrifice a £100 billion industry for the sake of keeping a few Brexiters happy makes mm-hmm. me want to hurl um it's it's philistinism on the highest level um they don't care uh, about what happens to the musicians and the artists and those who work in the industry that's the technicians those who support the theater keep it going and all the lighting all the people who drive the equipment all around the world um for all kinds of different artists not just theater people um, it's it's completely devastating. Not only does the government remove the arts from the um, from the English baccalaureate, but they um, then compound it by not caring about. Um, they they are more concerned about having European artists coming in for ninety days um, than they are about uh, than keeping them out. I should say than they are about their own musicians and yeah. actors and those in the industry. And I don't understand that. They should be supporting us first. Um, well, what are we? An afterthought, something to be sorted out later on. Um, well, France has very generously um, given British artists a chance to work for 90 days. But if they're, I suspect that if their artists are given a hard time um, and clobbered with all sorts of visa costs over here, they may well rescind that. Um, it's 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 reciprocal and has to be handled uh, i don't quite know how to handle it because the, the softly softly approach has been tried and i suppose there are those with more patience than me um but i i i it's philistinism and i'm not very good with that it's very hard to know how to respond to all of this i find myself in a state of rage all the time actually because mm. the government has made such a spectacular mess of mm. handling the pandemic, of Brexit, of pretty much everything. I'd say the one exception to that is the vaccine programme, which mm-hmm. uh, at least we have vaccines ordered. Whether or not mm-hmm. they uh, get into people uh, in uh, sort of enough time is another matter. But we have the government we have. They have a huge majority. Uh, the chances of having a different government next time are unfortunately currently quite low, but we can hope. Mm-hmm. Um there's a limit to what we can do apart from rage on whatever platforms we have. And we have to live our lives in this country, in this environment, in this political uh, regime. Shaming, shaming um, regime. It, this shaming regime. And I think I am really profoundly ashamed at the moment to be British. I think many people are, but that's the situation and we have to deal with it. But I wonder for musicians, even before the pandemic hit, and obviously the live arts have been absolutely destroyed, we hope not permanently, but certainly for quite a while by the pandemic, and Mm. and they've had Brexit thrown into the mix. Even before all of this, musicians were earning about less than 16 grand a year on average. For someone who wants to go into music now, what would you say to them? well, music is a broad subject, isn't it? What is it? I mean, in choral, if you're going to try to be a choral professional, that might be a nice, nicer profession to join. There's lots of good um, semi-professional choirs that you, know, you can earn a living from that. But if you're mm-hmm. going to, com- you know, when you leave the Royal College of Music, say, what do you do? Um, uh, even even the avenue of teaching has become stymied, as for what I mentioned earlier, the, the removal of music in, in mm-hmm in the state school system means that the opportunities of getting a job as a music teacher are very slim um, after you leave because people that's only a module now. Uh, the, the, there's a huge drop off of music um, teachers, uh, mm. each academic do, um, exams rather than just private flute lessons. Um, 
so I, I advice to young to young people um, is to do with do what you absolutely must do. And if you must play and you must sing, do it. And and anyone who says you can't, they can take a running jump. I think you, you should stick by what you absolutely love. I also think it's a very useful to have something else. Um, you know, if you're good at something else where you can actually consider earning some money, um, if you're a gym bunny or something, maybe get a qualification teaching exercise classes or or something like that. Or if there's um, maybe if you've got a degree then or even if you hadn't take take an HND in teaching, uh, get something where you can actually um, stick with what you need, you know, what you must do. Mm. Mm. And if there's, can you find any hope or ray of light or something that could come out of this pandemic that we can hope, realistically hope for from this pandemic that might actually be better in some way than what we had before? Only a small thing, and that is perhaps we don't need to travel around the world quite so much. Mm. Um, I'm not talking about musicians, I'm talking about meetings and mm. um, communication. Um, an awful lot can be done even with Zooms regarding uh, auditions. You can learn a lot from watching a video of somebody. Mm. Uh, you don't necessarily have to hear them live uh, for an initial audition. I think that's that's quite that's something that is is fascinating. Uh, apparently, a lot of casting has been done at the moment for films and plays is being done online, and that's a, a whole different scrutiny set of scrutiny. So, but anything good taken away from the pandemic, other than unnecessary travel, um, I'm leaning towards no. Mm. Um, I I think we have we need to be with each other physically in a room. Mm. Um, I miss hugging my friends I miss being part of a team um, I miss being able to greet people after a performance and I think we'll I just think this is what we need we're pack animals or whatever the, you know we need to be around each other mm. this is very unnatural what we're being asked to do necessary but unnatural mm. and it's very very hard especially for those living on their own couldn't agree more Jane Sarah, thank you so much for being on my podcast. It's been an absolute joy to speak to you. Thank you, Christina. Thank you for asking me. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you liked it, I'd be really grateful if you could share, rate and review it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcast. It really does help other people find it. Do follow me on Twitter, where I'm at QueenChristina underscore, and on Instagram, where I'm at QueenChristinaWriter. If you want to find out how I dealt with my own big work interruption, you could check out my book, The Art of Not Falling Apart, which is recommended self-isolation reading in The Guardian and The Eye. Here's to not falling apart and to doing work that works for all of us. And I hope you'll join me again next week. <laughs>